Well, Matthew chapter 9, I want to take you through the next section of Scripture together, beginning in verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collector and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put the new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Well, there was a group of people back in these ancient days of Israel who were living the American dream. They had big houses. They took expensive and exotic vacations. They had two chariots in the garage. And from the American viewpoint, they had it all, everything they needed, except for one thing, acceptance with God. They chased their real God, money, and they had their own circle of friends like themselves. And we encounter several of these people, obviously I'm talking about tax collectors, people like Matthew and Zacchaeus, because money was the God of the tax collector, They made a lot of enemies. Some tax collectors sent goons to your house to shake you down and to run through your house and to see what they could get out of you. Other tax collectors, like Matthew in this passage, sat at a booth and collected taxes. Imagine setting up for yourself a booth on the 84. And every truck and every car that goes by has to pay you money to continue on the highway, and you try to collect as much money as you can get out of them. Not too much, lest they take another highway, but enough to certainly make it worth your while. That was the idea of Matthew sitting in a a booth. In fact, the entire nation of Israel was a massive toll booth in the ancient world. All the goods traveling by land, coming from Rome, Asia, Europe, traveled through Israel. All the goods traveling west from Persia and beyond, even India, traveling by land, traveled through Israel. All the goods coming up from the south, from Africa, if they were traveling by land, they traveled up through Israel. And as a result, Israel was the great toll booth of the world in those days. And they were fabulously wealthy, the people were, especially the tax collectors. As one historian explained it, quote, put up a toll booth and you're printing money. 
There was no such thing as a poor tax collector in Israel. But there was no spiritual acceptability either for these tax collectors. They represented the heavy boot of the Roman Empire upon the necks of the Jewish people. Tax collectors in Israel were the equivalent of Gentiles. Therefore, they could not have a saving relationship with God. So what hope was there for them? As a result, Jewish tax collectors represent a spiritual dilemma. How do unacceptable people like tax collectors get accepted by God? They were rejected by the caretakers of Moses' law in the day, scribes, rabbis, Pharisees, and yet they were Jewish through and through. They needed someone to call them into fellowship with God the same way that the other unacceptable group of humanity needed to be called into fellowship with God, that group of humanity, the Gentiles. What tax collectors needed and what Gentiles needed was someone greater than Israel, greater than Moses, greater than the law, who could come and call them into acceptability with God. And this is where Jesus Christ comes in, and this is where this passage takes us this morning in an astounding array of explanations that start with a mere simple tax collector sitting on a Capernaum road collecting taxes one day to the broad sweep of human history and the saving plan of God Almighty. So would you join me this morning as we make our way, we'll walk our way through these verses together, and I just want to break it really into two sections. The first section is some scandalous choices, and the next section is a sincere question. Now the passage flows very simply. Verse 9, it kind of sits off by itself. It's a story of Matthew being called to be an apostle. But then it's after that, it's bang, bang. The first is in verse 10, where the first word is then. That means it happened immediately afterward. And then the next bang is in verse 14, then the disciples of John. So you have this verse about the calling, and then you have some immediate results as pictured, as happened right after that calling of Matthew. So we'll start first with the scandalous choices. The first one is this, the calling of a tax collector. Jesus calling a tax collector. Join me back in verse 9 for the details. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. Well, this is unusual, to say the least. You walk by someone, you say, follow me, they immediately get up and they follow you. But this is a real shocker to the Jews. Rabbis like Jesus and tax collectors like Matthew are like oil and water. They don't interact. They stay away from each other. The rabbi or the teacher is at the top of the social righteousness ladder, especially in Israel. They stand at the top of everybody. The most respected, the most honorable, 
and they took great care to be sure that they stayed there so that everybody would honor them, everybody would respect them, give them respectful greetings in the marketplaces. They would get invited to all the important cultural events, sit in the front. And then at the bottom, in social squalor, rejected by God, sat the tax collector. So one of two things is going on in verse 9. Either Jesus is going down the social ladder, or the tax collector is going up. Just calling Matthew a tax collector tells you this is a rabbi who is scraping the bottom of the barrel for disciples. And yet, look at the top of your page. It says, Matthew, an apostle. And he was likely the most educated man among the 12 apostles. There's even a school of thought that believes Matthew may have, when he was listening to Jesus, have written down at that very same time the sayings of Jesus because as a tax collector, he would have been skilled in shorthand. It was important for them to be able to write out always a bill of receipt to everyone who paid taxes. And so he would have been educated. He would have written. It's very possible that he wrote even the Lord's words as he was listening to them. Whether that actually happened or not, what you are holding in your hand is the very first-hand testimony of a man who was called by Jesus Christ to come follow him and who is giving you the teachings of that same individual. He followed him. He knew him. First-hand testimony. Now, I only mention that because some critics of the Bible, some critics of the Gospel of Matthew don't want you to believe that. They want you to believe that the Gospel of Matthew was written by a group of disciples, a group of Christians, early Christians, and they wanted their particular version of Christianity to gain influence, to gain more followers. And so they wrote the Gospel of Matthew together in order to gain credibility. Now there's just a problem with that, and it's this. In verse 9, they claim to be writing on behalf of Matthew, but then they make him a tax collector. The people despised tax collectors. Tax collectors were known as liars. So, no, this can't be a group of people writing to gain influence and social acceptability and to try to attract people to their credibility when the very people they say they are represents the tax collectors. So this has to be then an individual man. His name as given by his father was Levi, which would have been used among Jews and among people who wrote and spoke in Greek, which was the vast majority of people. It would have been Matthew. He was the son of Alphaeus. And he had a booth set up on the main road going through Capernaum in order to collect taxes. He would have lived comfortably. He would have had his friend. But he must have been growing in an all-absorbing interest in a rabbi who had recently moved to town, had been healing people, had done some miracles, and just very recently had healed a paralytic by declaring him forgiven, and that paralytic had got up and taken his stretcher and had gone home, and now he is 
thoroughly interested, thoroughly committed to wanting to follow this rabbi, Jesus, who has miraculous powers. And he's been listening to him preach. He was there at the Sermon on the Mount, recorded it all, wrote it all out for you and I. This rabbi's been preaching the truth. And now you are at the end of that process that has culminated now in just two words in verse 9, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And follow him he did. Tradition has him dying the death of a martyr in Ethiopia many decades later. So, this is a scandalous choice here to call Matthew, a tax collector, to be your disciple. So Matthew holds a feast in Jesus' honor, and he's, he's leaving the tax collector profession, and he's following a rabbi. You see, tax collectors would have lots of friends, because what you do if you're a tax collector in order to make friends is you don't collect taxes from your friends, from your buddies, and you do collect them, and then you collect over the amount of people that you don't like, and then you have to pay your certain portion to the Roman government, and you keep the rest one ancient writing in the, among the Jews equated the tax collector to a robber. Another gave permission to lie to tax collectors. The Mishnah says, quote, one may vow falsely to murderers, plunderers, and tax collectors. Tax collectors, in other words, you could lie to them if they were asking you how much you, you possessed. You could just lie in order to protect yourself. And tax collectors were the quintessential sinner of that day. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, If you only love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Jesus even used tax collectors to describe people in the church who are excommunicated out of the church for unrepentant sin. Jesus says, If he will not listen to you, Put him out of the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So even in the teachings of Christ, the tax collector is the lowest of the low. They are to be equated with lying, idolatrous Gentiles. Therefore, choosing Matthew to be his disciple had the perception of a totally scandalous choice. And then in verse 10 we learn of another scandalous choice. Look at verse 10. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. You didn't do this in Israel. Who you ate with was very important, and who you didn't eat with was very important as well. Now, Matthew here uses the word many two times in order to help us to understand, actually once in verse 10, many in the other versions, Mark and Luke, in order to tell you that the house was filled, Matthew's house was filled with these kind of people. Luke 5.29 records it this way, then Matthew made a great feast in his house and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. So picture the scene. You have Jesus reclining at the table in the house. The word reclining there is the word for up reclining, meaning sitting at a chair. 
so this isn't the scene that we kind of get a lot of times in the scriptures of men leaning down, legs splayed out from the center. No, this is a group of people sitting at tables with chairs, which tells you that this is a wealthy man. He has not one small table. He has many tables, many chairs. He's able to put many people into a situation where they can be taken care of. He's wealthy. Now, wealthy houses like Matthew's also had open courtyards. And it was culturally acceptable for you to stand in the courtyard and to watch the the man of the house take care of the people who came for dinner. That was fine. And that is the scene you have. You have an open courtyard in a wealthy home. You have a house that you can look into, and you can see all the people dining. You can see the, the waiters, the servants serving everybody. And you can stand there, and you can talk with each other while they're having their discussion as well. And that's what you have here. And so in the courtyard are some Pharisees who are watching Jesus and his disciples and all these tax collectors and all these sinners eat a feast. Look at verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? Now, it's important to understand that when the Pharisees say that, they say it loud enough for the disciples to hear. By saying it loud enough for the disciples to hear, Jesus also hears these words. That's why in verse 12, it's Jesus who answers. So they say in the middle of Matthew's dinner party, honoring Jesus, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? Right out loud for everyone to hear. Jesus heard those caustic words. The disciples heard those caustic words, and everybody else who was there, Matthew's guests, heard those words. Not a very nice thing to say, is it? In fact, it's pretty rude. So here are the Pharisees wanting to ruin Matthew's feast in honor of Jesus' call to him and that he's leaving his tax collector post. And yet the Pharisees would have felt totally justified in having to say that because in their own thinking, tax collectors and sinners are already damned by God. Which is why Jesus responds this way. Look at verse 12. But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's a remarkable response. In this response, Jesus sides with the tax collectors and the sinners. And everything Jesus said back to the Pharisees was heard by everybody else there as well. So you have Jesus rejecting all the judgment of the Pharisees and staying with the dinner party and honoring Matthew and honoring those who Matthew invited, these tax collectors and sinners. Maybe you guys know 
some of these Pharisees. The Pharisees were the fence pointer outers. They could tell you where the fences were. They could tell you how far to go, what you could wear, what you could eat, what you could say, who you could eat with, who you couldn't eat with, what you couldn't wear, what you couldn't eat, what you couldn't drink. They could tell you where the fences are. You can go this far, but don't go any further. They had rules, and they had rules on how to interpret their rules. And Jesus, in distinction, only wants to be understood by everybody who is at the dinner party as a doctor. That's why he says in verse 12, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. See, the Pharisees were all about just enforcing rules in order to help people feel like they were on the inside. They were inside the fences. They were okay. And Jesus looks at these people and he sees that they're not spiritually healthy. Jesus doesn't want you looking over your shoulder all the time at spiritual fences and what's okay to eat, what's okay to drink, what's okay to wear, what's the right music, what's not the right music, what's the right television show, what's not the right television show. And then life eventually becomes only marked out by fences. Jesus wants you spiritually healthy so that you are able to be discerning. Well, watch how the doctor resolves this mess with a couple of commands. Look back at verse 13. The first command is go. He says go, or translated into our Americana, get out of here, scram. Leave. Be gone. That's what he says. Be gone. In other words, Jesus socially rejects these people. You are now to leave. You may leave. You are not welcome here. Is the very first thing he says. And then he gives them some homework to do. After you have left, secondly, go back to verse 13, learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Now, compassion obviously was not a strong suit with the Pharisees. Compassion was eating with these people. It was earning their trust. It was being real as just a human being with them. Compassion was not driving them away by labeling them as tax collectors and sinners and shaming them in front of everybody else in order to attain for yourself personal honor. This is Jesus arguing for compassion. By the way, we see here the divisions within Moses' law that there is a higher law morally than there is ceremonially. God says, I desire compassion out of the book of Hosea and not sacrifice. But these Pharisees would leave, and they would go back to their morally superior lives and their morally superior religion and feel smug about themselves and continue to tell everybody where the fences were. 
because they couldn't be too close to sinners. You think about it. And if there was anyone who really had a reason to be distant from sinners, it was Jesus. He was holy. The only thing sinners could do was defile him. But he's a physician. He comes to heal. And the first thing he does in this situation is to tell these guys to vamoose. It is so important that we believe that God loves sinners and that we reject the multiplied voices of the modern day Pharisees who tell us he does not. It is important to believe that so long as a person lives, God is giving them love. Whatever God is doing eternally is to be hidden from our eyes, and we are not to prejudge. But if God is granting that person's heart to continue to beat, he is continuing to allow that person to extol and, ex- and re- rejoice in beauty. No matter what, we are not to assume that God has already damned that person. We need to understand what Jesus says at the end of verse Seven, at the end of verse 13, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That is the appeal of love. And so understand right now that Jesus in this section is where he wants to be. He doesn't want to be with the Pharisees. He wants to be feasting with sinners. Now, there is a lot to tempt you about who is worthy of your love in this world as a Christian and who is not. The homosexual issue today is huge. The politics of our country are huge. And the multiplied voices begging you to execute judgment on fallen human beings can only inculcate in us hatred, judgment, despising, and prejudging, making us quite at home in the front courtyard with the Pharisees and very awkward with Jesus sitting and feasting with tax collectors and sinners. With homosexuals, Jesus would have enjoyed a barbecue with them. Now, he would have done so to reach them for the gospel. And I want you to notice that at the very end of verse 13, he does not shrink away from calling them sinners. It's not as if he leaves his theology at the door in order that he can go have fellowship with these people. But they are created in the image of God, and they are fallen. But he certainly sees the fact that he came into this world to chase down sinners. And so you and I too. And even while the scriptures use the word sinners, it's not always the wisest to go off and just label people as sinners. To be sure, they're going to feel that as much as you would if somebody called you something you didn't like. And so there is wisdom in knowing when to label someone and when not to. And when to extend love and mercy and compassion instead of judgment all the time. 
But that's what happens when your Christianity is all about fences. What you can wear, what you can eat, who you can hang out with, what you can listen to, what books you can read. And on and on and on the list goes. None of that, of course, has the wonderful grace of compassion in it. Did you know that there's only one group of people as Christians that you are to socially avoid? You know who those are? That is, those Christians who are under church discipline. Just church discipline. And as a result, they're impenitent in their sins, and this is only for a short period of time until these individuals either repent and come back to the Lord or until they just leave. But once having left, you are no longer to socially reject them. They're just like everybody else in the world, and you are to love them. If God gives you grace, reach them for the Lord, for the gospel. But those are the only people in the entire world we are to socially reject. Did you know that? And so all of this now, you see these scandalous choices coming. Calling of Matthew, a tax collector, and then eating so much with tax collectors and sinners that the disciples of the Pharisees are so upset. Now, that's your scandalous choices. Immediately after this discussion with the Pharisees, the next thing you have, beginning in verse 14, is the word then. This happens right afterward. And this now is the sincere question. So join me, please, in verse 14. Here comes the sincere question. Then the disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? John was Jesus' six-month-old older cousin, born to Elizabeth, who had a signature ministry in Israel, that was best known by him baptizing people who came to him a baptism of repentance. And he had gathered to himself many disciples and had baptized Jesus himself a number of months ago before this occurred. Now many of these disciples of John the Baptist were up there in Capernaum and you get into a private conversation in verse 14. Do you see specifically there how it says they came to him? This is not during Matthew's feast. This would be after the feast. This is private. This isn't the Pharisees looking and talking in order to shame sinners and in order to exalt themselves. No, this is a sincere question coming from these men. Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And it makes sense. They were in the courtyard. They saw Jesus and his disciples feasting, just like the Pharisees did, but they're honestly confused. John the Baptist baptized Jesus. John the Baptist baptized many of Jesus' disciples. But neither Jesus nor Jesus' disciples are acting like John the Baptist's disciples. They're feasting instead of fasting. The, the disciples of John the Baptist are just like the Pharisees, who also fast. So you can understand their confusion. That's why it's a sincere question. Why do we fast like the Pharisees? Why do your disciples not fast? 
You might remember their teacher, John the Baptist, had been absolutely brutal on the Pharisees. He had called them a brood of vipers. But they're looking at Jesus. They're looking at his disciples. They're all feasting. They're having a great time. But they're with sinners and tax collectors. And then they look at themselves and they're fasting and they're, they're mortifying their flesh. And they, they realize we're more like Pharisees than we are like Jesus and his disciples. It must have been very upsetting to them. Are we on the right side? Are we like the Pharisees? They certainly knew that John the Baptist had said that Jesus is far greater than John himself. John had said, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So they're deeply, deeply confused men. And to clear things up, Jesus reaches down to their level. And he does so with three analogies. The analogy of a wedding preparation, garment repair, and wine preservation. All three of these analogies relate to the ministry of Jesus Christ and the transition from the Old Covenant age under Moses to the New Covenant age under the Apostles. Front and center in all three of these analogies are the Apostles. These men, the Apostles, must be taken out from Pharisaical Judaism, guided by Christ so that they can start the era of the churches, God's next epoch of saving sinners. So, just as the Mosaic era was governed by the writings of Moses, so too the era of the churches, or the era of the apostles, will be governed by the writings of the apostles. So these three analogies now that Jesus gives to the disciples of John the Baptist is that everything, guys, is about to change. The times are changing. Maybe you're one of those people who doesn't like change very much. You folks are called the human race. Nobody likes it when things change very much. But that's what Jesus is talking about here. Things are changing. So let's take each of these three analogies. We'll kind of walk through them together and see the majestic. I mean, the, the wisdom of the Lord in this is fantastic. Now, the first analogy is this. So wedding, wedding preparations. Join me in verse 15. But Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. Can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. That's weird. When you're having a wedding, you don't expect to mourn. What's going on here? Well, when a wedding is about to occur, it's only days away, the bridegroom and his bridal party, the men who are standing up there with him, they all feast, they all rejoice, they all go do fun things together. They have fun. But then these words are such a shock. 
They can't mourn, obviously. But then Jesus says the days are coming when the groom is going to be taken away from them and then they're going to fast. That's very strange. When a bridegroom gets taken away, they're going to fast. Something, in other words, so tragic is going to happen to the groom that the apostles are are going to mourn. The apostles here being the attendants of the groom here in this analogy. This is shocking. Jesus is here predicting his shocking crucifixion that his apostles did not expect. And they will be so shocked by it, they will mourn. The apostles will be expecting a wedding feast, or also known as the kingdom of God, when will happen that great wedding feast. They were expecting it as they were marching into Jerusalem together with Jesus for the final time. He had to tell them a parable to say, look, the kingdom of God is being put off. We're not going to a wedding feast, guys. And they didn't get it. They were expecting a wedding feast. Instead, what they got, instead of the kingdom of God coming when Jesus went into Jerusalem, they ended up getting him being crucified, and they went instantly into mourning, and they went instantly into fasting over the sadness of the events. They were expecting a wedding feast. Instead, they got his own crucifixion. Such tragic events occur. Jesus never did teach his disciples to fast during his three-day, three-year ministry. Excuse me. But the apostles did mourn for three days, fasted during that time, and then he arose from the dead. And they were filled with joy, and there was no more need to fast. He had risen from the dead. So Jesus' words here were literally fulfilled. These men, the attendants of the groom, did fast once he was taken away from them by crucifixion. Those three days, Friday through Sunday. That's the first analogy. They are going to fast, but not until I'm taken away. The second analogy is that of garment repair. Join me in verse 16. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Easy to understand. Take an old garment, take a nice patch of new cloth, stitch it all around, stitch it to the garment. But what happens the first time the garment gets wet? Well, the old fabric, that doesn't shrink, but the new stuff does because it hasn't shrunk yet. And once it does, every stitch comes out and the worst thing happens. The garment is worse than before because the entire hole is now made larger and it's worse off than it was previously. Now, back in those days, people only had one garment. And when it was so badly torn and tattered, eventually you couldn't repair it anymore. You had to get rid of it and make a new one. The old garment here is the mosaic dispensation. The garment belongs to God. For over a thousand years, God means to reach the world with his saving mercy was through Israel, the world's toll booth, whereby everybody who was traveling came through Israel by land, and they would see if Israel was the light on the hill. 
course, by the time you get to the time of Jesus Christ, Israel is torn, shredded, tattered, hypocritical. For generations now, the garment of Israel has been torn into pieces, worthless. Men make it a mockery. It is under the foot of the Gentiles. It is shredded in hypocrisy. And Jesus says you can't take an unshrunk patch of cloth and put it on it. That unshrunk patch of cloth is his apostles. He says if you do, at the end of verse 16, a worse tear results. Remarkable words. Because the shredding of Israel without the apostles occurred in 70 AD when 2 million people were killed by the Romans. Jesus says if the apostles had tried to been stuck into the function and the structure of Israel, a worse tear would have resulted. So in the garment repair analogy, Jesus is teaching the disciples of John the Baptist to wait because the patch of unshrunk cloth, the apostles were being prepared. Wait. Wait. Which leads now into the third Analogy that of wine preservation. Look at verse 17. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Well, you might know, you might not, that new wine produces gases that kind of effervescent themselves out of the wine. And if you put it in an old wineskin that has already kind of hardened and crusted, it has no more elasticity in it, eventually the gases are just going to expand and the wineskin is going to burst. The old wineskin here is Israel. It's old. It's lost its elasticity. can no longer serve God's plan. And Jesus says what you can't do is to pour new wine into that old wineskin. The new wine is the apostles. You can't pour the apostles after I've trained them back into Israel. It won't fit. The new wine needs a new wineskin, and that will come. It will be the age of the churches. For The apostles to reach the tax collectors of the world and the Gentiles of the world, the people who have no acceptability with God, it is necessary to prepare the new wine, the apostles, and to put them into new wineskins. Critical. Well, as you know... You can't take new wine and put it in a wineskin of old material, otherwise it bursts. And so, as a result, Jesus says, you must put it into a new wineskin. And then look at the end of verse 17. Both are preserved. And I take that to mean that both the old wineskin that's lost its elasticity and the new wineskin which is the age of the churches, are both preserved. So you have Israel being preserved, and you have the age of the churches, which is really the people of this present era being saved. And so therefore, 
Jesus is predicting that both will be preserved. And so this is a marvelous statement of Jesus Christ here, that here God is about the business of changing the world so that people who are like tax collectors can be saved. Some of you who have silver gold, silver white hair might remember back in 1987 a little girl named Jessica McClure down in Midland, Texas, was dangling her feet into a shaft that was in her backyard. Just a little thing, I think five years old at the time. And uh, she got up and stood up, but unfortunately she leaned into the shaft, and down she went, down to the bottom of the shaft. This became great news. For days they tried to figure out how could they save this little girl. They dug a shaft down 59 feet. And then they dug over five feet. And they were checking on her, and they they grabbed, but they couldn't get her out. Her body wouldn't give. They checked her vital signs, and they were getting worse and worse, and she was coming closer to death. Finally, the doctors, seeing that she was losing hope, after all these hours, all these days, told the men at the bottom of the shaft, who were reaching up and could touch her, pull hard. She does not have much time You may have to break her to save her. When the rescuers pulled the last time, Jessica became free. Without any additional injury, she was unhurt, and she was rejoined in the arms of her parents. Some of you remember that. This is like God's plan for humanity. You may have to break Israel to save tax collectors, and sinners. Pull hard. And pull hard it does. And they're broken. So that people like you and I, who are the modern equivalent of tax collectors and sinners, might not be like the Pharisees, but rejoice in the fullness and grace of God, in the rescue plan that descended deep in order to lift us up and save us. What a resounding success the Lord's plan was for us. Would you join me in prayer? And Father, as we contemplate taking the Lord's table, we are so grateful for the depth of the plan that you made by which to save us, the mercy and the kindness of sending Jesus Christ, the wisdom that was in that man so that Apostles might be trained so that they might have the wisdom necessary to write down everything that was necessary for us to know about your death and resurrection so that we might be saved from our sins, so that we might live according to your word and might please you in all respects. Oh, how good and gracious you've been to place us in this church with these leaders and with these gifted musicians and gifted people. So, Father in heaven, thank you for your kindness, mercy, and plan. We pray, of course, in Jesus' great name. Amen.